0: A lot has changed in 100 years, but a lot has stayed the same. The church in the United States is once again in a crisis. Critical theory has gripped a nation experiencing vibrant technological and societal change. America in the 2020s is exhilarating. Our screens are filled with incredible stunts and spectacle. The entire globe is connected like never before. Electric cars, Artificial intelligence and on-demand shopping have transformed how we live and work. Smartphones and the advent of social media mean that information travels faster than ever before. Politics, technology, identity, power, science, everything seems to be changing. So why not faith? This is Christianity and Liberalism, a podcast based on the book by J. Gresham Machen. In this show, we'll be discussing a modern-day church in crisis, and engaging with Machen's classic text to see what lessons we can learn and apply one hundred years later. The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is gone and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring
1: the antithesis, the lambs dripping rest Is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is gone and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand C&L, with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell
0: A century has passed since J. Gresham Machen published his masterpiece, Christianity and Liberalism. But as we've learned, it doesn't read like a 100-year-old book. That's because Machen's biggest concern wasn't defeating theological liberalism in the 1920s. As we learn in today's chapter, Machen's deeper desire was that of every Christian, to see sinners come to new life in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Joining me today is Dr. Craig Troxell. Craig has more than 25 years of pastoral ministry and serves as the Robert G. Dendulk Professor of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's also the author of the book, With All Your Heart. I asked Craig when he first read Christianity and Liberalism and how it affected him.
2: Well, I have to to be candid and say I actually don't remember... when I first encountered this book, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but I did walk through uh, Machen's uh, Greek grammar, even when I was in college in the, in the 80s. I still have it as duct tape as holding the binding together. Uh, but I, I read the book when I was first uh, pastoring the church across the street from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia at Calvary OPC. And I think probably what impacted me the most, and you've heard this several times, is this book had to have been written only 10 years ago, Mm-hmm. Is is so incredibly relevant, and there's some debates. Even as I reread this chapter on salvation, the way that Machen is is present, the way he's just anticipating. There's even a paragraph where you would think he was talking about new perspective of Paul. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's just amazing what he's anticipating and and how relevant uh, it is to theological debates. But I think more, I think more helpfully is that. Machin always understood just your average person in the pew. He yeah. knew exactly the questions they were facing. This was never really an ivory tower sort of guy. Mm. And that's why some of us just love him, those of us who are pastors, mm. is that he's just nailing it. And he, he's trying to be really honest about those most searching questions people have. And the most fundamental question is, how can I be saved? Yeah. And that's what he's answering in this in this chapter, really.
0: Yeah, it's amazing to have a scholar who is able to communicate at such a lay level and in such a persuasive, effective manner. Uh, and he does so really clearly in this chapter with regarding salvation, and it's really helpful. From the point of view of a pastor, how do you see the role or use of this book in the church today? How would you use it or apply it?
2: I have used it. I've led a couple of men's breakfast groups through this book, and it's amazing how it wasn't very hard to, to make the, um, the step from Machen's day, what, was the, what were the debates of his day, to what's going on today. Mm. And I think it just simply reflects something rather simple, like these questions are always the relevant questions. How can a person be saved? Do I do it through my own efforts? Um, can I do it through these different versions of the gospel that are preached in various churches? And most of the time that answer is wrong. And what does it mean to hold to that very simple message of Christ crucified and risen hmm. and only through faith in him and casting all of my trust and confidence in what he has done? That's my only hope. Hmm. And so those questions are always relevant. There's always uh, versions or semi-versions of the gospel that people are encountering, that people come to us from other traditions, uh, like when I was raised in, that that are not— true to the doctrines of grace, um, that are kind of shaded versions of perhaps a work's righteousness. Uh, So I think as a pastor, you're always uh, trying to help people. You're always bridging where they're coming from. You're always attending those hurts. And then there are those people that have a very sound view of Christ. But when the trials of life come, it pushes them. You know, it stresses their faith, mm-hmm. and they begin to to wonder: um, Is this Redeemer truly capable of carrying me, you know, through this? So it's not mm-hmm. their orthodoxy that comes in, in the question; it's just that doubts arise from other segments of life, and you have to bring them back to that fundamental confidence that Christ is more than sufficient, not just for justification but for sanctification. Yeah,
0: when they brought those semi versions of the gospel to you and when you're addressing them regarding salvation by faith alone, did you find that that this was mere theory for them, like they had read Matthew Bates or N.T. Wright or some popular author who's trying to sneak in some liberalism? Or did you find that this was really an issue at the application level?
2: Both. I mean, people come to to the doctrines of grace. We could say the Reformed faith for various reasons. Some are drawn intellectually. That's probably more the case for some or seminary students. Yeah, But that's not true of everybody, and it's not true of all of our seminary students. Some realize that mm. what they were given just was not capable of handling the freight of, of life, mm. and that they were handed a Porsche, and they really needed something like a semi that could carry all this stuff. Yeah, And, uh, and for some people, it's a crisis of spirituality. Like myself, I was raised in a church that believed in perfectionism and a mm. holiness movement. And it just came a point where we realized this is not true. Yeah, I just can't live above sin. I kept yeah. waiting for that second blessing. How long did that take? Well, it took a long time actually, yeah. because I was raised by by very genuine people. My grandfather, probably the most wise Christian I ever knew, mm. but being raised in an Armenian Wesleyan tradition and really trying to struggle with holiness and trying to have integrity with that, mm-hmm. um, that what I came to realize is that. The aspiration was true. We are called to holiness. We probably don't talk about that as much as we should in the Reformed Mm -hmm. faith, but realizing this is just not sufficient. This is this can't really answer my questions, and you can't really live in this zone where you're saying, "Oh, I've made some mistakes, but I haven't sinned in 15 years." That's just lying to yourself. Mm -hmm. But I think it comes back to the same point that you know, uh, what Christ has done, Mm -hmm. is it sufficient? You know, and this is where I love. Calvin, where he says Christ comes close with the whole gospel, you know, and uh, that the one to whom I'm united is capable not just of clearing my name before God and and all those forensic categories and my legal standing, my being adopted, but also for those transformational categories and Mm -hmm. being born again, being sanctified, and ultimately my glorification, which is the union of both those things, that he is seen to all of it. Mm -hmm. And that can answer every doubt. That can answer every question I have. And so it's drawing people to that Christ. That is that is kind of what Machen is, is getting at in terms of what do we mean by salvation. And these lesser versions, which promise so much, but you walk through the door of those, those promises of this false gospel and you realize this is all a charade. Yeah. It's like those where I actually lived in a town... 300 people in Western Nebraska, that's where I went to high school. And you could go downtown and still see these storefronts like you have like in Westerns where you have this big, tall, built-up front, but behind it is a small building. Hmm. It's just a show. I don't even know what you call those things. Hmm. But to me, that's kind of the way I feel like you know any false gospel is you look at it from the outside, it looks really impressive. You walk through the door and it's like, this is a <laughs> shack about where they fall apart, Yeah. as opposed to, somebody put it this way, the gospel that's preached in swaddling clothes and you walk through it and realize what's open to you is the whole universe hmm. and the God of the universe. That's the hmm. true gospel.
0: So what does Machen then mean by salvation?
2: I think it's a great question. <laughs> I think he means being saved. I, I, I saw this question. I thought, I'm going to answer this. But I think uh, here's how I would answer it. What I think he's getting at is there's salvation and there's the promises to salvation. Just, I guess, what I was just saying, and Mm -hmm. I don't want to repeat myself, but what does it mean to be saved? What does it take to get saved? What are the instruments of salvation? What are the promises of salvation? Um, But I think he's, he's, he's talking about what will bring, for instance, real freedom, as opposed to claim to bring freedom, those who are trying to escape legalism, or as he says, ironically, how is it that liberal... Liberalism, or the liberal gospel or the gospel of liberal theologians actually leads back to a slavery and mm-hmm. a legalism. Mm-hmm.
0: Although it may surprise those who solely view Machen as a stubborn Presbyterian, his focus in this chapter was true Christian freedom. Freedom from the slavery of legalism that was at the heart of the liberal project.
3: Here's Machen. It has been observed thus far that liberalism differs from Christianity with regard to the presuppositions of the gospel, the view of God and the view of man, with regard to the book in which the gospel is contained, and with regard to the person whose work the gospel sets forth. It is not surprising, then, that it differs from Christianity in its account of the gospel itself. It is not surprising that it presents an entirely different account of the way of salvation. Liberalism finds salvation, so far as it is willing to speak at all of salvation, in man. Christianity finds it in an act of God. Why is that
0: distinction so absolutely crucial?
2: Everything hangs on it. Everything hangs on it. We could, just to reiterate the question and answer, is it a man-centered or a man-originated religion? Is it God-originated? And I think it it gets to... Um, the heart of, of what the gospel means relative to every other religion on the planet, every other form of idolatry that man has created, every other modern religion that we have, they all stand in contrast to Christianity yeah. in this sense that every other religion is is building a Tower of Babel. I'm going to build myself up to God. I'm going to earn my way there. I'm going to get myself there, which, as all of us who have come to Christ know, is the most exhausting thing you could possibly do. Yeah. <laughs> But Christianity is unique in, in it's saying what God requires of you, you cannot perform. Mm-hmm. You cannot do this. You cannot acquire uh, what you need to live. And He condescends to us. Mm-hmm. He reaches down. Or as Romans 8 says that that God did in Christ what the law could not do because of human flesh. So God, so Christ does what we could not do. Um, mm-hmm. I heard it put something something like this. That Christ has died a death that we could not endure, carried a burden we could not carry, conquered an enemy that we could not defeat, to gain mm-hmm. a salvation that we could not earn, that, that we do not deserve. Mm-hmm. It's all done by Him. Mm-hmm. And so, when you want to make your your launching point something within man himself, this is just like everything else. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll you're it's you're not going to get what the goods that it promises, and it's 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 there's a ceiling on that. And Christianity is totally different from that. You have to start from this more transcendent perspective, and it has to be something rooted in God's grace, this um, incredible gift of life that we do not deserve, that we never would have dreamt up, as he says. Mm -hmm. But honestly, by nature, we don't want. And he gets at that as well. Mm -hmm. Why is it the gospel so repulsive, as opposed to something that's man-centered or originates in man, where I'm the measure of things, that sort of thing.
0: Why isn't it enough to understand Christ's death as simply a good example Hmm. of self-sacrifice?
2: Yeah, well, you hinted at it already, and that is, it's not taking seriously the reality of our most desperate need. Hmm. What's our real problem? Do we just need a better example? We have lots of great examples around us of self-sacrifice, etc., etc. But what's our desperate need? And it gets at the the root of the problem—that sin is not just uh, some feeling of disappointment in myself, I'm just not as good as I could be, that at the end of the day, all sin is measured by its offense against the true and the living God, Hmm. uh, who is a consuming fire, Mm -hmm. who is holy. And when we deserve nothing but his unquenchable wrath, what do I really need? And so... That's why even like in the book of Proverbs, it says the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? It's not just an understanding of who God is. It's understanding who I am mm-hmm. and keeping that always, always in mind that even when I'm praying to my Father in heaven as the Lord teaches us to pray, I can I can do that with confidence He's a Father, but I never forget who I'm speaking to. Mm-hmm. And there is this this reverence and awe and, and, and even this, this deep fundamental fear of who He is mm-hmm. that I always have in mind. That's part of the package. Well, the atoning death of Christ keeps that in mind. And that's the thing that the liberal theologian or, or some sort of uh, semi-version of the gospel does not want to keep in front of us. Hmm. It's a painful thing to consider. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have uh, theologians that even mock the idea of, of the wrath of God. C.H. Dodd, who, who you know, we would consider a lot of his work to be really good. Yeah. But this was something to him that was just unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of propitiation that you would need to propitiate the wrath of God. He says this is nowhere in the Bible. Yeah. It's like it's yeah. everywhere it's in everywhere. the Bible. <laughs> Every person in the Bible who thinks they're in the presence of God assumes they're about to die. Yeah. This is it. I'm done. Mm. That's that's actually a very reasonable response. Mm. But it's it's a a semi version or a, a bastardization, if I could use that word in the proper sense of the gospel that wants to shield people from that. But the problem is people know that's a lie. Mm-hmm. They know they're accountable. They feel their guilt. It's just, it burdens them terribly. Mm-hmm. So they need to be set free. And you can't do that with lies. Yeah. You can't do that with some Hallmark card version of the of the gospel. I'm not mm-hmm. sure how to put that nicely, but, but that's what those other versions of the gospel are. They're just not telling the truth. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Romans 1.18 and following... Tells us, you know, by natural law, we know that God exists, that he's powerful and that we're going to be accountable to him. And that's just the reality. What the liberals seem to be assuming about anthropology there is not that we are dead in trespasses and sins, maybe not even wounded. They want to emphasize the goodness of humanity to be able to emulate the sacrifice of Christ and it's putting Christ as a se- in a secondary position Mm -hmm. and the person himself becomes the grounds of their own hope, which is very anti-gospel.
2: It is. And and by understating God and overstating man, I think people, it's it's flattering on the surface, and it's what some people want to hear. Mm -hmm. But eventually they they bump up against the reality of things. And you see it popping up in all kinds of places. In a movie where you have a really, really bad dude, at the end of the movie, if he doesn't get what's coming to him, and maybe even a little bit more... Like dying a torturous death. People are disappointed. Yeah. And this generation right now, this young people this young generation we have, really, really concerned about issues of justice. Mm-hmm. And the way they're articulated are in very absolute terms. There's this this deep rooted sense of who we are. Mm-hmm. And we and we want justice to prevail. We really want uh, evil to be answered, but just not with me. <laughs>
0: As long as that guy's good. As long it. as it's everybody else.
2: But but they just can't yeah. deny it. And you see it. It pops up all around yeah, you, where you true. just want this. I think one of the most graphic examples of my life was when I was in India, and I was with this group of educators. I was a student at the time representing Gordon Conwell, and we were involved late at night in a fatal car accident. Our bus hit a farmer mm-hmm. and um, killed him, mm. and the police were quick on, this, on the spot, and they were getting us off the bus and getting us on to another form of transportation right away. And the reason they told us, and the bus driver, by the way, ran away. Wow. We thought, oh, this is outrageous. We found out that as soon as news got back back to the nearby village, they would come and either lynch the bus driver or those who hired him. Wow. So I thought, wait, this is not really Hinduism. This is reality. Hmm. You know, there's there's this is not there's not a circle. This is not come back and reincarnation. This is about we need blood. Mm. And just shows how deeply rooted it is they could not escape this God given sense of this is so wrong, it needs to be answered. And you want to say yes and amen. Mm. That's built into us by the by whose image we bear, by the one whose image we bear. At the end of the day, you can count on that when you're, you're preaching the gospel that this person absolutely needs to hear this. And they mm. might be kicking and screaming and saying, Why are you insulting me? I'm a good person. Mm. But no, you're not. Mm. Not when you measure yourself against him who made you, mm. who he really is. Mm. And that's what Machin understands, just very, very simply. To bring it back to Machin from India.
0: <laughs> that's great. <laughs> you know, you mentioned a big word, and I wonder if you can expound on it propitiation. What does that mean? And really, what does that entail?
2: Well, I think in, in terms of uh, Machen's argument here, I, I think the key place to see it, is in, 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 as opposed to uh, juxtaposing against other terms, is, is the idea that the wrath of God gets exhausted in Christ and, and that he wins our favor with God. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that the sin gets canceled. You know, David has two concerns in Psalm 51. He's concerned about his sin. This has got to be taken care of. It's got to mm-hmm. get covered. But he knows and there's the other problem, that's him. And that's why he keeps using, piling up these these synonyms for blot out my transgressions, wash me clean, cleanse me, because there's him. And so propitiation understands that, that there's something very personal taking place and I need, I need to have somebody stand in my place. And that's Christ, the substitute, as Machen brings this out, who not only deflects the consequences of the sin, but deflects or exhausts, saturates in himself all that wrath of God uh, that righteousness of God that is due to me a sinner who has transgressed and rebelled against him. Mm-hmm. But uh, along with that, I need someone to, to win the favor of God that I'm seen as favorable in his sight, namely in that pure, perfect, wonderful, um, in, inexhaustible righteousness of Christ mm-hmm. in which there is no flaw whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And, and such is the case that there's not a single drop of wrath against me. So that when Paul says there's now no condemnation, he means none. There's none. Christ has answered all that. That's, and that's the importance of preaching that gospel faithfully, is that he has taken all of that. Hmm. So there's nothing left for you to say, well, I did my part too. Yeah. No, there's none of that. You can't say that. Let right. him boast, boast in the Lord. Mm-hmm.
0: Throughout the scriptures, from the Pentateuch, Through the Psalms to Revelation, it's clear that there's nothing we humans can do on our own to appease God's wrath. I asked Craig why that concept of God's wrath is so difficult to embrace.
2: Because they think it it runs against the idea of of a God who loves and a Father who loves. And they're pitting certain excellencies of God against one another. They're thinking you can't have in the same person, the same God, these attributes but they need to read Romans to get to the point where Paul says that God is both just and the justifier. Mm-hmm. And, and he does that for sinners such as ourselves. And it's because this God, who is altogether righteous and most holy, is the same God who sent his Son and sent him out of love. And uh, John Owen makes this argument so well in communion with God that the, that the love of God is prior to the sending of the Son and the fountain of that is in the heart of the Father, but it's mm-hmm. but it's true that God is disposed against sinners. We can't have it. We can't have it any other way. You have a compromised view of, of God if you have Him uh, less than than angry uh, with with sin. That's how Paul begins his argument, as you alluded to earlier. You cited rather Romans 1.18, that the righteousness of God is be, is being revealed against. Um, unrighteous men who suppress the truth of God unrighteously. It Mm -hmm. is being revealed, and it's his wrath. It's his anger. Uh, So that's that's absolutely necessary for understanding the gospel.
0: I think even Christians have a faulty understanding of this atonement theory, propitiation, as if God the Father was angry with them, and Jesus had to step in. Do you think that's common? And do you see that in pastoral
2: ministry? Yeah, I know. I think that is common, that, that Christ... Is, is not so much a mediator between God and man as he is between us and his Father, and that even his sitting there uh, as a constant witness at the right hand of God is for those moments perhaps when the Father's in a bad mood and Christ has to remind him, no, wait mm-hmm. a second, I died for this one. Yeah. And this is not the case. And again, if I could cite John, o- John Owen. Please do. You know, he, he talks about these false understandings of the gospel to end their anti trinitarian the Father, Son, and the Spirit have one will, mm-hmm. and those that Christ saves are those that the Father has loved, mm-hmm. that he predestined in love, that he chose in love. And they're the same. And, and so it's it's, it's not um, it's just it's important to uh, keep these things tethered together, that our, our doctrine of God is so crucial, and Maitre understood this. The prince and theologians were outstanding on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity being central Uh, To what we think seminary students probably wonder, why do we spend so much time on this? And maybe even people in the church, why are we having a Sunday school class on this? Mm -hmm. And as Herman Boving said, that every doctrinal heresy eventually leads back to a misunderstanding of the Trinity. Mm. It all goes back to that. There's something that went wrong there, Mm. and later on it shows up and something goes haywire, something goes askew. Mm. So to have that fundamentally solid is so helpful in understanding the gospel itself.
0: Yeah. And it does seem that's what Machen is trying to get at, even in his chapter on salvation, where he emphasizes doctrine, but not at the expense of seeing the love of God within the doctrine, right? It becomes doctrine when it's for me. He loved me and gave himself up for me. And when we talk about atonement theories, it seems like we can get very, you know, uh, we think about Anselm's theory, man owed a debt, man couldn't pay it, so God has to pay this debt through the Son, and this sort of transaction, leading scholars like, well, many, other, many scholars to think that this is a God who is logical, correct, and just, but not a God that I'd want to worship because he doesn't love me. It seems like what you're talking about with John Owen and Machen, they're bridging the gap between doctrine as something intellectual and love, which is not just an emotion, nothing less than an emotion.
2: The doctrine is the drama.
0: Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> that's, that's right. Dorothy Sayers. Yep. Yeah, this is where the action is. Yeah. It's the stuff that's true. Isn't it interesting how, how Christ, when he's, he's talking to one of his disciples, Philip, he says, um, I am the way and the truth and the life. And I've wondered if he means by way, that grounding metaphor of Proverbs, mm-hmm. that you could almost go with it this way, because I'm the way, I am the truth. And because I'm the way and the truth, I am the life. And I think that's what we hold out to God, to, to people, is that do you want life? Mm. Yeah, that's, that's an appealing message. Yeah. Well, it's tied up with the truth. And yeah. we have to always remember that it's the world that considers truth to be an idea. Mm. And that is, that is not sufficient for how the New Testament presents the truth. The truth is something you walk in. Mm-hmm. Christ says the truth is what sets you free. It's what we defend, we live and breathe in mm-hmm. this because it's a way of life. because it's more than ideas, it's more than theory. Yeah. That this this is our life, mm-hmm. and it's because Christ is that truth.
0: Mm-hmm. Amen. Now, related to atonement is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Again, there, there's a need for the imputation of Christ's righteousness. What do we mean by that, and what practical implications? stem from that doctrine.
2: I preached a sermon in Romans 5, 12 through 21 one time in a church. This is a PCA church up in New Hampshire where my wife and I worship when I was a student, Gordon Conwell. Hmm. And she says, I don't like this idea very much at all. I had nothing, <laughs> I had absolutely nothing to do with that fruit in the garden. That's Adam. Uh, That's not yeah. me. It's not yep. my fault. And I said, well, I said, what would what do you think about Christ dying on the on the cross, did he have, What? What was he responsible for the sin that was imputed to him? I said, well, let me, let's me let up it up one more time. What about the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to you? She says, oh, I see, <laughs> and she was content. So by imputed, we mean credited to your account. It's like you went down oh, to yeah. the bank and you put $5,000 in my, say I want this credited to Troxel's account, put it in his account. It wasn't mine, but it is now. Mm-hmm. It's counted as mine and so those three acts of imputation in scripture where all of our I'm sorry Adam's guilt is imputed to all those who come after him as he's our federal head in a similar way our sin is imputed to Christ but what's imputed to us is his righteousness and it's it's a legal business type term and uh, the reformers understood the gospel hangs and falls upon this that we desperately need this. It's not something you can earn this is not infusion it's imputation. Mm-hmm. But there's something uh, wonderful about the fact, and going back to Romans five twelve to twenty one, that Christ absolutely answers yeah. what Adam has done, and as so Paul lays out that argument, he starts to say, "Now here's a comparison." So, well, wait a second. There's three ways in which they're different, and so he he stops his argument. He picks it up again in verse eighteen, and says, "Okay, now we can get back to the the ways in which it's like," hmm. and through so the contrast, it heightens the, the comparison hmm. that he makes between Adam and Christ, and you really. Come away with understanding that if if we don't have this comparison, we would be so deprived in our understanding of the gospel. Yeah. If we didn't have this idea of of imputation, and it's a wonderful thing uh, to ask young people when you walk them through like a confessing Christ class when they're or professing their faith class, and have a thirteen year old. I said, "How did how did that righteousness of Christ become become yours?" He hmm. said, "God graciously imputed it to me." Hmm. <laughs> and it's just wonderful because it's it's the heart of what we believe.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it goes directly against that liberal understanding of the goodness of man, maybe being wounded, but there's some good and worth, Machen attacks that. Um, I think also Christians still struggle with that. They begin to rest upon their own righteousness and almost see their own righteousness as something separate from the righteousness of Christ. Uh, or they begin to think that they need to add upon this foundation that was laid in Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- what do you think is leading them? What what liberal strain is leading them away from a Christian understanding of the gospel there?
2: Well, let put it this way. I don't take this as a correction. I, I'm not so sure it's a liberal strain as it is just a, a natural fallen man DNA. No, that's fair. Um, we are constantly, constantly being pushed in this direction by our hearts that I, I need to do something in mm-hmm. this. And so if I have a week where let's say I don't sin as, as I do regularly, it's a week where I'm really in the scriptures. I'm praying more. It's highlighted by some, some really wonderful conversations where I was able to give a timely word or somebody said, I really appreciate you. That's week. We say, God, God loves me more. Mm. And then the following week, uh, didn't go as well. You know, had to argue with my wife. Mm-hmm. I got exposed again of not being the wisest father in the world. You know, <laughs> didn't day. do as well in school. You know, whatever. So I, I just really wonder if God loves me. Hmm. And and so we have this this way. And that's just one yeah. one way in which we we talk to ourselves and totally and and feel like the gospel is really kind of rises and falls about how I feel or yeah. how I perform, yeah. and trying to convince people that. It doesn't really work that way. And I'm sorry last week wasn't as good. And some of that's your fault. Some of that's kind of way life is. But it's in those moments that God is, is teaching you the sufficiency of his grace. He's my, maybe he's teaching you about your prayer life. Maybe he's humbling you. But he's not loving you less. Hmm. And as you know, as a parent, this is one of the hardest things, that teaching your children, when they really mess up and they messed up bad, and you tell them, you know that I love you, and they they hear it, but they don't. Yeah, and that's why you got to come back with that message again and again. Is that I I was disappointed in you. I can't lie to you. This was this was a disappointment. I'm just you, you know better than this. This is beneath you. Yeah, but let me put my arms around you. You know that I love you. Yeah. You can't do anything to make me stop loving you.
0: If I can throw in John Owen as well, uh, no. he says yeah. <laughs> he says our love is like the moon. It waxes and wanes, but God's love is like the sun, constant. That's just helpful, and that's the parental love that you strive for, to communicate that. Uh, Yes, God can be grieved, right? God the Spirit can be grieved. Um, He can discipline his children, uh, but it's constant. It's a constant love, like a parent who will always love their
2: child. What I love about that metaphor, the moon can be very bright but all of its light is indirect.
0: Although tragic, it makes sense that people outside the church would find Christ's atonement offensive. But as Machin points out, an aversion to the blood of Christ is antithetical
3: to the Christian spirit. Here's a clip from the audiobook. Against the doctrine of the cross, they use every weapon of caricature and vilification. Thus, they pour out their scorn upon a thing so holy and so precious that in the presence of it, the Christian heart melts in gratitude too deep for words. It never seems to occur to modern liberals that in deriding the Christian doctrine of the cross, they are trampling upon human hearts.
2: Well, Paul lays this out. Doesn't he in Romans, and says that you know this is folly to the Gentiles, it's stumbling block to the Jews, and we still have these problems today. Uh, the cross continues to be a stumbling block to rationalism on the one hand and empiricism on the other. If I could just use categories of, of modern thinking, and that man continues to be uh, offended, you know, by these by these things, and wants to. Uh, measure God or, or judge God, you know, as C.S. Lewis puts it, you know, God is now in the dock. He's the one now on trial. It used to be the way that all men understood that they were on trial before God, but no, that's not, that's not what's happening now. I think of this quote by Sigmund Freud who said, if I should ever meet God, I don't think I will. He will have more to answer to me than I will to him. Hmm. It's an incredible statement, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, that statement bothers a Christian. It offends us but it, it frightens us that somebody could have that kind of audacity. Mm-hmm. Well, that is the heart of modern man. But again, the New Testament, which is this timeless word of God, mm-hmm. Paul is speaking to that, says, says you need to understand this message is and always will be offensive. Mm-hmm. It gets to the very heart of, of human pride that I I need to be able to boast of myself. And um, it's what's interesting is that in our day, I guess it was probably about 15, 20 years ago, the emerging church was, was very hot, and it had spokespersons who were saying this very thing, talking about cosmic child abuse. That was a label used by one of its leaders. And that was a, an important tell to show you that this is, this is getting off the rails really quickly, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying we've discovered the authentic Jesus, the real Jesus. It's like, this is a Jesus molded in your image, and it's true in the West. There are times we've, we've imported way too much cultural stuff into the gospel message as we've preached it around the world. That's true. We'll take that critique. But you can't have uh, a gospel that says that it, this is cosmic child abuse. Hmm. And it just goes to show that it is an offense. And it's offense to people who are church and people who are unchurched alike. And there, you can go in churches where the last thing that you'd want to do is to uh, preach the gospel because it'll offend every person in the room. I mean, you should do that. Uh, I'd been in an ecumenical, ecumenical setting one time where I was asked to pray before the meal, and I turned to the leader and I said, Are you sure? <laughs> do you know what you're doing? And he got a big smile, and he understood the question. He said, Yeah, go ahead. And I opened the prayer with our Father in heaven, and I knew instantly, instantly, the reaction, And you could feel like somebody just opened a window in the middle of winter, <laughs> this chilly air. <laughs> All these people hated me. Yeah. And it got worse when I ended it in the name of yeah. our crucified and risen Savior, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, oh, those moments were so great to be yeah. in you know. But, <laughs> but it's always going to be an offense. And and that's what yeah. Paul's getting at, this human pride that says, I I can't have this. Surely didn't take this. And so that's why it's important when we say, when we present the gospel, we won't say that God loved you so much, or Christ loved you so much, he gave his, his His life for you. There's a way you can say it's okay. As long as you make sure you're measuring by saying, this is not what you were worth, this is what it took. Hmm. That's the important part of the message you get through when we talk about Christ hmm. uh, dying for us as an expression of love, because it is an expression of love. The Bible is very clear about that. Nah. But it's not a statement of your worth. That's that's getting off track. Hmm. And if you put it that way, then people say, oh, I can handle that. Look how special I am. You know, Mm. the son of God died for me. Mm.
0: Now, that's getting at something really um, emphasized by the liberal. So how how do you balance out him not doing something for your worth, but then being created in the image of God?
2: So maybe one way to approach it would be this way. What is the the tragedy that takes place in Genesis 3? The tragedy is not that the giraffes fell or the rhinoceros or the, the beetles, you know, or the lions. The thing that distinguishes humanity and what is unique to humanity is being that image bearer. Here's one made in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. Here's one who knows God. Here's one who can communicate with God, made to commune with him. That's the species who fell. Mm -hmm. The very heights and zenith of his creation. There's nothing more exalted in that creation story except for God than humanity, men and women. Mm -hmm. And that's the tragedy. And and that's why we can still, in in the same gospel, speak of these image bearers um, who... Have this this place of royalty, as Psalms eight Psalm eight puts it, mm-hmm. in all of creation. And yet, this is what it took to save them, because uh, no one could sink as low as humanity. I think about this in Christian worship. For instance, when we confess our sins in Christian worship. We're not just rehearsing the gospel and saying, "Well, we're unworthy of the gospel," and so we confess our sinfulness. We're confessing our sins as Christians. Mm-hmm. That's a tragedy. Not as unbelievers, but as believers. That's, that's the remarkable thing. I have given my life to Christ. I not only confess him as Savior, I've, I've um, vowed my allegiance that He's my Lord, that I will not sin against him. And we're confessing our sin as Christians. That's the tragedy. Mm-hmm. And why that is such an important part of Christian worship, to confess that sin, that even we who love Christ, who profess love Christ, have fallen short. And to hear that affirmation of the gospel, that he loves us. Yeah. And so I think it's in that way, it's, it's an incredible travesty that it was the image bearers uh, who broke the peace, and so the peace has to be brokered for them. Mm. That's, that's the remarkable thing about the gospel. Yeah.
0: Now, as a pastor, how would you encourage pastors who are tempted to make the gospel less offensive in their churches or in their preaching?
2: How would I encourage them? I think, you know, when you're walking in the pulpit on a weekly basis, One of the th- I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stories we have in history of preaching. You know, Spurgeon, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. One of the things I would tell myself as regularly as I could, what if this is my last opportunity to address mm-hmm. my flock? Not just to preach, but to address my flock. These are people over whom I have a responsibility. I took vows that I would shepherd this flock. And that I would tell them the truth. And I don't know who among them are they elect and who are not. And I don't have no guarantee I'm going to be back here next week. Mm. You just can't live with that kind of um, myth or, or, or false or pretense. You have to tell them the truth every Sunday. And you know, one of the things we talk to our students about as professors at seminary is your sincerity will come by the fact that you believe what you believe. The urgency will come when you feel what you believe, and I think those are the things that are constantly at test. Do I believe what I believe? And so, when it comes to the temptation to compromise the message of the gospel, I'm asking myself the question: What do I believe?
0: And that's and that seems to be what Machen is arguing against, where these preachers are getting up on a Sunday morning but leaving out key words that speak directly about the Christian gospel, maybe because they're ashamed, maybe because they have a big donor in the church who told them not to emphasize these things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think you're right. Remembering that this could be your last Sunday is a really helpful way to preach a gospel unabashedly.
2: I forget, I think it's Charles Bridges in the Christian ministry who says, when I preach these people, I remember, I'm not to appease them, I'm to feed them. Hmm. I have to tell them the truth. Right and who do I answer to? Ultimately, I'm accountable to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Who members my I'm accountable to the elders of the church, but ultimately, I have to face Christ. Yeah.
0: When Christians talk about faith, a lot of things come to mind, and in biblical scholarship, there have been a lot of attempts to redefine our interpretation of faith. Even since Machen's day, but I was drawn to a section of this chapter in Christianity and Liberalism, where Machen refers to faith as an act. I asked Craig if he can help explain that for us and why faith is so important for Christians.
2: I guess the way that I would put it, quite simply, is faith has one job and one job alone, and it's and it's to to reach out and hold on to Christ. Right? It's cling to Christ. So. Now, this was, this was crucial for Calvin and, and the Reformation, I would argue, recovered a, a sense of what faith is. It's more than assent, it's more than knowledge. Assentia, notitia, you know, these terms mm-hmm. that we've used. So it's fiducia, it's trust. Mm-hmm. And, and trust is an expression of the will. I would argue it's an expression of the entire heart. Mm-hmm. And so that all of the heart is involved in this. And Warfield says something similarly. And John Murray has this great statement too it's not faith that saves, it's faith in Christ and it's probably anticipating your next question, what's the object of faith? But that faith is, it's only an instrument. And the temptation always in theology to start putting more baggage upon faith. I think as John McLeod argues this in his book on Scottish theology, this is always, always the problem. Let's, let's, let's pack some obedience in there while we're at it. And there's somebody <laughs> yeah. of, of late saying, why can't we put love in there as well? And it's like, this: no, this is ruinous. Yeah, Because you're starting now to add things where, that where we contribute. Or these are actually commands. I'm commanded to love. Hmm. I'm commanded to be loyal. I'm commanded to be obedient. Faith has one job, and it's it's always instrumental in nature. Now I think it becomes a more interesting conversation when you start talking about faith as a theological virtue. Mm-hmm. But by nature, it's it is always instrumental. And and Mace understood this, understood this in his day, and he was simply breathing the air of the Reformation in that fresh voice of telling people, all of this is available to you if you simply cling to Christ. Mm. Go outside of yourself. And I think that's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who looked within and realized, I have no spiritual wealth. I'm poor in spirit. Mm. And I mourn because it's not just what I see that's there, it's what I see that's not there. Mm. And so I go looking outside myself for something I can't see in myself or that I can't produce, namely that righteousness. Hmm. And Machin is, is is he is he is playing that note very strongly. Yeah. And so that's why it's essential. And that's and that's a beautiful thing about being a, a preacher of the gospel, is that when people come to you and they're on this brink and they're desperate and they're looking at you, help me, you don't have to say, Well, you know, there's these three sets of exams you need to pass first. Hmm or we need to be confident you've mastered the Greek language, mm. or you need to read these two volumes of theology. It is simply look to Christ. Mm. And it's so wonderful. Mm. Uh, now they need to know something about the Christ that they're clinging to, the one they're trusting in. But it doesn't take you know, a course of, of theological study. It doesn't take even a, a, a certain amount of formal education it takes actually a very, very simple amount of understanding what the gospel is for people to realize yes, yeah, this is exactly right. This mm. is this is the one who I need.
0: Are you sure that you're an OPC minister?
2: Yes, always have been, always will be. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the free offer of the gospel. That's exactly right, which John Murray just wonderfully defends. Yeah, and um, and you see that comes out in this book too by Machen. Yeah, you know, just that this is a message for the whole world. Yeah. For everybody.
0: yeah, I say that in jest because I think I a lot of people just think, you know, the OPC is all about theological exams, and hey, you just need to get your doctrine right, and the appeal, there's an importance to getting your doctrine right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but when it comes to salvation, we're not talking about passing theological exams. We're not talking about passing an ordination exam. We're talking about clinging to Christ. You and you trust in Christ alone. Exactly. That's really
2: the heart of it, isn't it?
0: It is the heart of it. This battle over the heart of the gospel encapsulates 2,000 years of church history in a nutshell. Opposed to our newfound freedom in Christ, there is a perpetual human inclination to return to the slavery of the law. Here's Machen.
3: And there has been a return to the religion of the Middle Ages. At the beginning of the 16th century, God raised up a man who began to read the epistles to the Galatians with his own eyes. The result was the rediscovery of the doctrine of justification by faith. Upon that rediscovery has been based the whole of our evangelical freedom. As expounded by Luther and Calvin, the epistle to the Galatians became the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. But modern liberalism has returned to the old interpretation of Galatians, which was urged against the Reformers. I think
2: that it's only through the faithful preaching the gospel that we can promise, that we can make good the promise that Christ will set us free. Mm. And I think that means not just from the condemning power of sin, but the corrupting power of sin. Yeah. And so, I, and I think as, I'll be honest, as a Reformed minister, I find myself having to camp out on that second point. I doubt that very few of our people that worship in our churches and Reformed communions, if you ask them, are you justified by faith? they would say absolutely and and just would stand on that hill and die for it but if i asked them do you have a pure heart and are you a child of god and are you uh, can i call you a saint they would hesitate mm. and they'd say uh maybe one of the three or two of the three mm. i think there are other child children of god in this church and uh, technically that applies to me you know mm. if i asked them if they're pure in heart they would be very hesitant so in other words issues of sanctification i think is where a lot of our Believers struggle. They don't. They feel that the uh, the blood of Christ is sufficient to wash them clean of that condemning power of sin. But when it comes to the corrupting power of sin, I almost feel like some of people fall back into a yin yang, a different religion. <laughs> like it's it's Christ versus sin, and I'm just hoping that Christ will win in the end. He says he hmm. will, but mm-hmm. they the sin that lingering sin is so strong in their lives, they feel like it still has the upper hand. They don't feel like grace reigns through righteousness. Hmm. Um, I think that's the part where, as a preacher, I'm constantly coming back to them and saying, he is at work, he is at work, he is at work. And who is the one who's at work in you? It's the one who can do immeasurably greater than all you ask or imagine. And it's an immeasurable power. It's the resurrection power of Christ, the same power that raised him from the dead is raising you. And I think that's how I understand these categories of what is the freedom we're offering to people. The great hope ultimately is, will be the removal of the presence of sin altogether, but i don't really think that a lot of our people believe in their heart of hearts that christ is winning mm. and that the sanctifying power of the gospel is prevailing mm. and that they're losing ground or that other christians are just progressing far ahead of them they're being lapped continuously on this track and mm. and i think trying to give them hope i think is so important that Christ is not giving up on them, that this is surely a difficult season that they're experiencing. Nobody would deny that. But it's a season. Yeah, It's a season that has value. It's a season where he's equipping you. He's not tearing you down. He's building you up. Mm-hmm. And maybe he's humbling you so he can exalt you. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's driving you closer to him so that you'll finally get that prayer life going mm-hmm. and depend upon him more, be wiser, more helpful, all those things. Mm-hmm. But I, I think, to me, that's the power of the gospel that is not as embraced as fully as it, as it needs to be embraced. It could be I'm projecting more of myself, but as a pastor of 25 years, well, longer than that now, I would say that's where I feel like a lot of Christians struggle, and in, in, mm-hmm. in, in churches where the gospel is preached very faithfully and where the fullness and the sufficiency of God's grace is preached faithfully, and yet we struggle yeah. I think that's why we need the means of grace. That's why we need the sacraments. We need prayer. We need all these things to constantly assault the flesh and walk in accord with the Spirit that so we might see life and peace abound mm-hmm. as opposed to corruption.
0: Toward the end of this chapter, Machen makes some perceptive comments about the difference between traditional evangelical Christianity and the new trend toward liberalism. Liberals, Machen said, tend to focus on society as a whole, whereas Christianity has always prized the value of the individual in the context of communion with the body of Christ. Although this might seem like a subtle distinction, I think Craig's thoughts on why we should consider this idea in the church context today is a much-needed message.
2: It is, and it's been important since the 4th century, (laughs) you know, where Christians have been confessing communion of the saints, probably... The, the phrase didn't appear to the 7th century. I'm not sure. It's, it's kind of fuzzy how in the Apostles' Creed, when that phrase came in, mm. Communium Sanctorum. Mm. But it, it makes an important point that I'm part of a family. I, I'm, I'm connected to other believers. But how do you emphasize that without losing the individual, like you're saying? Mm. And I think the move towards collective, and I think that's absolutely true, What was interesting about 15 years ago was how the works of Ayn Rand just shot through the roof, just skyrocketed. All of a sudden she's popular, who's arguing against the collective. Like that's become like a a modern notion philosophically Mm -hmm. and political circles and others. So I think this is always a problem. And it's interesting that in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26, which is on the communion of saints, the third paragraph anticipates this. It anticipates how communion can be misunderstood in two ways how the vertical community, what we have with God, can be misunderstood to where one might think that we become engodded in a way that we somehow meld with the divine nature. So that's a that's a bad misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. But then it warns against a second misunderstanding, the horizontal, uh, that we would somehow lose personal rights or individual rights or property, and that we become a a, a communistic um, community in, in the worst sense of the word. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that politically. It means that where you just erase all individualism. Mm-hmm. The doctrine of election is an incredibly personal doctrine. Mm-hmm. It has to do with me. And there are places where the Bible emphasizes this. I'm thinking of Psalm 121, the Lord is your keeper. Every single pronoun in that Psalm is in the singular. Mm-hmm. It's spoken to me, that he will not slumber and sleep; he will keep me. On my rising, going to bed, coming in and coming out, he's watching over me. The doctrine of, of election is like that. It's down to the individual. It's very personal. We think of the, the apportioning of the gifts of the Spirit. It's very personal. You have this gift. Others might have this gift, but not in the way it's given to you. Mm. And by the way, this is not the only gift you have. You have a whole cluster of gifts. And this combination of gifts doesn't appear anywhere else in the body of Christ. Mm. So you have these, uh, these doctrines and you have these applications of the redemptive work of Christ that are incredibly personal. We never want to lose sight of that, nor from the fact that Scripture tells us to be quick to listen, to understand where is this believer coming from, to carry this burden of this particular brother or sister in Christ. So there's this profound individuality that is um, underlined in the New Testament that I must never, ever lose sight of, and not to judge. I mean, there's all kinds of ways we could bring this out, right? This, you don't know where this brother or sister, what season they're in. Don't be so quick to judge. Don't be so superficial. Mm. Um on the other hand, we're called away from an individualism where I would be calloused to my neighbor and, more importantly, where I'd be blind to my brother and sister that I'm brought into the family of God. The, the preface to the Lord's Prayer is to teach, teach us that, our. Mm-hmm. There are no personal singular pronouns in that prayer. They're all plural to remind me, our, 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 our. I'm connected. Um, I'm responsible to these people. What does Paul say? What what is the uh, the the you know spiritual gifts one on one? Was assumption number one, every gift I'm given is for the good of the body. Yeah. It's for others. Yep. You know anything that God allows me to see or to practice or to exercise, is for others. It's not for myself, for me to build myself up and say I have the gift of prophecy. No, it's I'm given this gift for others. How can I build them up and encourage them? And then when you think of all the one another commands that we have yeah. in the Testament, I've yeah. never numbered them. It's like it's got to be over to like 25 mm-hmm. or 30. Yeah. They're just endless. Yeah. You can't do any of those things as an individual by yourself worshiping online. Yeah. Sorry for the jab. But, <laughs> but it's true. you got to be connected. No, you got to get right. in there. And you see that person sitting in the corner all by themselves. Nobody's talking to them. But you see it. Mm-hmm. Do something. Go talk yeah. to them. Engage them. You don't know what you're going to say. You're already doing it by just sitting there, recognizing them, that he already is giving them that sense of affirmation. I am connected to the body. Somebody saw me. Hmm. And there's a lot of people who feel invisible in our churches. And we're all called to encourage each other. There's all kinds of ways of doing that. So I think what he's bringing out is, is so helpful That's both these things simultaneously. It's postmodernism always wants to give you a false dichotomy. Yeah. It's either this or that. That's it's right. like, don't be such simpletons. Yeah. Our life is more complex than that. I don't have to choose between either Italian or Mexican cuisine. I can have both, you know, sometimes at the same meal. What's wrong with that? That's not a sin. And that's the way the Christian life is, is mm-hmm. that when I'm feeling this message, it definitely applies to me. Mm. I can see where I'm falling short in this. Yeah. But my second thought is there's got to be other people in this church who are f- hearing the same thing. Mm. Let me just pray for them. Yeah. And lo and behold, what does God do sometimes? He shows you that need. Pronto. If somebody's talking to you and they just told you something they didn't mean to tell you, but they really showed that. That's the third time they said last week was really hard. Maybe I could ask. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to talk about why it was hard? I'd be happy to listen. Mm. So we're always connected uh, to the group. But it doesn't have to erase the individuality of how I do my gifts I don't have to conform. And, and boy, if there's one message that we can send to love our churches, you know, you don't have to conform to the person next to you. Just because they're raising hand, their hands doesn't mean you have to. And just because they don't doesn't mean you can't. Hmm. And you don't have to pray like everybody else. You don't have to mimic that person. You know, we don't have to wear expensive sneakers, right. you know. <laughs> right. Someone's can wear cowboy boots and it's okay. <laughs> but I think in the Christian life, I think it's, it's important to emphasize that if I could take back a couple of things, my first 10 years of ministry. Okay, though well, this is actually quite long. But one of them is, I wish I'd said more about this, hmm. about the gifts of the body, those individual callings, and just that faithfulness that these people have in the world, being a good neighbor, being salt and light, and just constantly, 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 constantly addressing that and saying, it could be that nobody sees what you're doing. That doesn't make it less important. Hmm. Continue to be faithful. Perhaps God will show you fruit of your ministry. He doesn't usually show most of us the fruit of our ministry, mm-hmm. not the vast majority of it. I think that's probably really good. Mm-hmm. For some of us, it's really important because we have such big egos. It would go straight to our head. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean it's not important. And I think a lot of people don't feel that way. I did, In my first congregation, I had a man who naturalized from East Africa, and we were talking about vocation. And he said, what? How could that possibly apply to me? I assemble cardboard boxes in assembly line. I said, What's the name of the man who works to your left? And he told me like that. Hmm. What's the name of the person to your right? He told me like that. I said, There's your ministry. Hmm. They see you on time, see you being faithful, hear you not complaining. They look at your life. They see the way that you talk about your wife, because I knew the way he talked about his wife, which was beautiful. Hmm. It's not about the boxes. But you'd be faithful in some of those boxes. But one of those days, that guy's been watching you for five years. He's got a sense of who you are. And he's hoping, he's just hoping that what he senses is true. Hmm. Not false, not wrong. He's hoping it's true. Hmm. And you just deliver a couple sentences to him and there we go.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and speaking of sharing your gifts in the body. uh, I think it's really important to remember what my former pastor in Florida, Mike Francis said one time, that if you're not using your gift in the church, you are spiritually pickpocketing your brother. You're robbing from him because what you can give to him gives life. And that life comes directly from participating in the son by faith as we as individuals come together and are united to God and one another. And as Philippians 2.12 says, work out your, plural in the original, your salvation. But then verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the sort of doctrine that helps us understand how individuals and the community can relate to one another and build one another up in the faith as we see that day of salvation drawing near. So I appreciate this moment where you shared your gifts. Uh, Dr. Troxell, thank you so much for that and a moment in which I was built up in the gospel and in the faith. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Hey there, before you go, I just wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast. If you're interested in what you've heard in these episodes you can find a copy of the book, Christianity and Liberalism, as well as the audiobook and a free study guide at Christianityandliberalism.com. I'd also like to encourage you to ask your pastor to help you learn more. And if you don't have a pastor, please visit some churches in your area and find one that preaches Christ. Like Craig was saying, the church desperately needs the gifts that Christ has given his sheep. So as much fun as we've had making this show, podcasts blogs and social media are no substitutes for living in communion with brothers and sisters in christ as imperfect as it is there is no better place on earth than christ's church i think machin put it really well is there no refuge from strife is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life is there no place where two or three can gather in jesus name? to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, and to unite in overflow gratitude at the foot of the cross? If there be such a place, then that is the house of God, and that the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. Many thanks to my guest, Dr. Craig Troxell. This episode of Christianity and Liberalism was brought to you by Westminster Seminary Press. WSP has published a brand new edition of the book this show is based on, Christianity and Liberalism by J. gressa This 100th anniversary edition features a new foreword by Kevin DeYoung and is available to order now at WTSBooks.com. Listeners to this podcast can get a free download of the Christianity and Liberalism audiobook at checkout when you enter the promo code MACHEN23. That's M A C H E N 23. This podcast was hosted by David Briones. The episode was produced by Josh Curry and Jimmy Atkins. Audio captured by Rudolph Gallegos, edited and engineered by Paul Quorum. Our theme song was written by Timothy Brindle and produced by Nobody Special. Thank you for listening.
1: Christianity and liberalism to demonstrate the two completely different religions. Liberalism denies man's wicked condition and divine inspiration with which scripture was written. Uh Us Christians are convinced scripture's truly factual, but liberalism denies the supernatural. matron's book definitely showed Christianity and liberalism are diametrically opposed. It's not a different version of Christianity. It has opposite views of God and humanity. Often disguised with Christian terminology, they baptize the serpents, absurd philosophies. So when we call you a liberal, it's not just political, but rejecting his virgin birth and all of his miracles from trusting in science. But against God, it's disgusting. defiance. self is your trust and reliance. The line is drawn in the sand. Christ is gone and he's man. Upon the rock of the word of God, we will stand. We bring the antithesis. The lamb's dripping wrists is still the only answer for man's wickedness. The line is drawn in the sand. Christ is gone and he's man. Upon the rock of the word of God, we will stand. C&L. With Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell Machen press men to be honest Don't call it Christian if it essentially is godless Christianity is based on events God accomplished Christ was sent to bring redemption he promised Not just an ethical leader, respectable teacher But God in the flesh Yes, our blessed redeemer In affront to human pride You can only be saved by faith in Christ who was crucified Amen. Our greatest needs to be redeemed by the Son It's not what we're Jesus do but what Jesus has done since we're slaves to doubt, pride, and lust. We're in desperate need of rescue that's outside of us. An understatement to say that we're flawed in need of what Machen called a creative act of God because we're torn by sin. We've been abhorring Him, not just sick but dead. We must be born again. God's enemies, His arrogant opponents, who can only be saved by vicarious atonement. Judgment fell on Christ in my place. Unrighteous, guilty sinners are only righteous by grace. Scriptures, historical acts they are certain jesus the god man the supernatural person we need new hearts he's the compassionate surgeon by his death and resurrection he's smashing the serpent the line is drawn in the sand christ is gone and he's man upon the rock of the word of god we will stand We bring the antithesis, the lamb's dripping rest is still the only answer for man's wickedness. The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is God and he's man. Upon the rock of the word of God, we will stand. C&L, with Machen, we will tell. Faith in Christ, still the only way to be redeemed from hell. My intention is to show, and I'll mention in this flow, Machen's words are as useful as a century ago. Uh Liberalism breeds destruction, it's hopeless. Today, it's deconstruction and wokeness. Rooted in paganism, atheism, like Satan's mission make CRT state religion. These abominations we see to this day in denominations like the PCUSA. Why embrace Maiton's great wisdom? In light of the claims of his racism In 1913, Machin wrote mom complaining, angry about Princeton's campus integration I can't believe the decision of Warfield, but this cancer of heart I'm sure the Lord healed, see Warfield became Machen's mentor An instrument for Machin to repent more, showing his need of the Savior to change him, but consider the Lord's grace of sanctification Machin became friends with an African American named Charlie Machin. Gladly had cherished him, as a matter of fact, Charlie had a cataract Skin killer didn't matter as Machen had his back Paid for the operation, stayed with him in the hospital Christ changing Machen, not an impossible obstacle From his love for his friend Charlie, it's quite clear Christ was changing Machen partly Any bigotry left, it's not there any longer Perfected now in the presence of his father The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is gone and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis, the lamb's dripping wrists is still the only the answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell